In 1203, Arthur of Brittany was callously murdered by his uncle, King John. Now, in the reign of his son Henry, Arthur's sister Eleanor was imprisoned in Corth Castle as a potential claimant to the throne. Henry would treat his cousin with the dignity and grace never displayed by his tyrannical father. She was even exhibited annually to prove that she hadn't been murdered. Before she died in 1241, Henry gave her a crown so she could be queen for a day. Henry was not cut from the same cloth as his belligerent predecessors. He was placid, he hated tournaments, and grew to hate war. He was known to make bold, ambitious policy pronouncements, but to lack the drive and determination to see them through. It was his relationship with lords and barons that would characterise his reign, releasing his own predilection for tyranny. It would bolster his critics as Magna Carta was etched into history, and England saw the dawn of parliamentary democracy. This is Henry III. Henry was born in Winchester Castle on the 1st of October 1207. He had a strong build with a distinctive drooping eyelid. He had four legitimate younger brothers and sisters, and various illegitimate ones, placing him in the ordinary position of a son of virile medieval kings. His life would change dramatically when at just nine years old he was thrust into the spotlight when his father, King John, died in 1216 leaving a chaotic scene of division and gloom. A French prince, strengthened by rebellious English barons, was on the brink of claiming the English crown as they dominated southern England. On his deathbed, King John pleaded with the most trustworthy and respected figure in his council, William Marshall. He must be Henry's guardian. Marshall was shrewd enough to doubt the effectiveness of such an arrangement. He agreed, however, and set up a council of 13 executors to help Henry reclaim the country that was slipping away. Henry was crowned at Gloucester Cathedral within days of John's death. With the crown lost, a simple gold corolla of his mother's was used. With zero pageantry and regalia, this was a simple, symbolic affair. The courtiers, upon seeing Henry crowned, remarked, that this tiny speck of minute beauty is the sole hope of a torn kingdom. As low-key as the ceremony was, Marshall knew that the blessing of the Pope of an anointed king was a significant symbol of legitimacy. Marshall's loyalty and nous meant Henry was in safe hands. Marshall once said, If all the world deserted that boy, I would carry him on my shoulders. I would never let him down, even if forced to scavenge for my own bread. Louis, however, 90 miles away, still had broad control of the south of England and would not be deterred by the coronation so easily. He split his forces in two. While a force was sent to Lincoln, he led half his troops to besiege Dover Castle. Marshall gambled and led an army of 400 knights and 250 crossbowmen to Lincoln to overwhelm the Cloven army. When they arrived, the walled city had been breached and the castle was under siege. Marshall was in his 70s, ancient for the Middle Ages, but he had lost none of his vigour. Before the charge, he roused the royalists. These men have seized and taken by force our lands and possessions. 
Shame on the man who does not strive this very day to put up a challenge. If we beat them, it is no lie to say that we will have won eternal glory for the rest of our lives. No reckless, visceral charge commenced. Instead, Marshall planned a decoy attack before leading his troops through a secret gate into the city to ambush the enemy. In perhaps his finest hour, the 70-year-old William Marshall personally led the charge in a six-hour, gruesome, fierce, deafening battle on the narrow streets of Lincoln. The Royalists were victorious, as the enemy commander took a spear through the head. Meanwhile, the French fleet was being destroyed by the English, led by Hubert de Burg at Sandwich. The English threw quicklime, downwind, to blind their adversaries. Eustace the Monk, an English pirate who had abandoned John, was beheaded. The war was over and Henry had secured his crown. Louis was paid £6,000 to leave England immediately. England had a boy king. The last one was Ethelred the Unready. The country would hope for kinder fortunes this time. Unfortunately, the man to whom Henry owed everything, William Marshall, was finally fading. Marshall, not trusting any noble to be steadfast, gave protection over to the Pope. He turned to a 12-year-old Henry and said, I beg to God that you grow up a worthy man, but if you do follow in the footsteps of some wicked ancestor and wish to be like them, I pray you die before it comes to that. With that, William Marshall died in 1219. King Philip II of France described Marshall as the most loyal man he ever knew of. Henry would be left in the custody of lesser men. Henry paid homage to Pope Honorius III as his feudal overlord, and a fresh coronation in 1220 at Westminster Abbey put beyond any doubt Henry's legitimacy. In 1223, the great Angevin antagonist, Philip II of France, died. He was replaced by the prince who tried to conquer England. Louis VIII immediately flexed his muscles and invaded Poitou. His ally and archenemy of King John, Hugh de Lusignan, overran Gascony. The last strongholds on the continent were gone. Henry was able to take back Gascony relatively quickly, and by 1225 the king was 18 and his protection should have ended there. But Henry continued to lean heavily on more learned men. He was still very much lacking in leadership and guile. The retaking of Gascony instilled a hunger for conquest. By 1230, Louis VIII had also died, and had been replaced by a boy king, Louis IX. France was fragile. While de Burg wanted peace, Henry was beginning to take control. He satisfied the Plantagenet hunger for conquest and took his army to France. Henry's military incompetence was laid bare as the campaign lacked direction and potency. It was a disaster. It was a far cry from the commandeering of his grandfather, his uncle, and even his own father. Henry was no military leader. He would spend the majority of his time in England with little desire to reclaim the land of his ancestors. By 1234, the king was 27 and was finally taking the reins of power. In the past, he had been reluctant to take sides in quarrels between his advisers. He was beginning to show signs of resoluteness. Over the next 30 years, however, due to the legacy of his father, King John, any attempt to seize further control or pursue personal gain would land him in direct dispute with the barons as an act against Magna Carta. This impediment was new to kingship. 
1236, Henry married 13-year-old Eleanor of Provence, a girl who had never stepped foot in England and would only be unveiled at her wedding day. It was a lavish affair. All roads were cleansed of mud, dirt, sticks and anything offensive. The whole city of London was draped in flags, banners, lamps and candles. The guest list was stellar, including Louis IX of France and 360 horsemen carrying a gold or silver cup to use at the feast. The event left the population speechless. This was a king that would promote and revel in the prestige of monarchy. Eleanor soon brought over her family, the Savoyards, to court. They came and immediately influenced public policy, and they were generously awarded titles. This was a country that was becoming acutely aware of its need to protect its heritage. The barons were keen to break away from the autocratic French style of governing, putting them at odds with their king. The Savoyards entered England without a word of English and obtained top positions. They were an affront to English barons. This was what Magna Carta sought to eliminate. Queen Eleanor, as the instigator, became massively unpopular, not just among the barons, but among the population. When she sailed her barge along the Thames, she was pelted with rotten fruit. She was also mobbed on London Bridge. Much later, she spitefully refused to allow the bridge to be repaired when it was damaged. Meanwhile, Henry was starting to make political decisions unaided, and he was clumsy. Henry's sister, also called Eleanor, who had been widowed and had vowed perpetual chastity, was married off to a nobleman without consulting the barons of England. To marry off a valuable bride with diplomatic and financial connotations in secret was a further insult and resulted in rebellion that took six months to quell. The French nobleman, now fashioned as the Earl of Leicester, was Henry's close friend. Ironically, he would become his most fervent rebel and enemy in the decades to come. Simon de Montfort. Upon the birth of his son Edward in 1239, parties filled the streets of London, proving Henry's ability to forge and maintain the prestige of the royal family. Even in the face of Magna Carta, the couple never forgot their status. The couple rejected certain gifts for Edward that were deemed unworthy and demanded that better ones be bought. One chronicler bemoaned, God brings us this child, but the king sells him to us. But for the first time in an age, England had a royal family that were cordial. Henry was never unfaithful and spent as much time with Eleanor as possible. His children loved their parents and were almost entirely loyal. To add to the image of regal power and wealth, Henry opened a menagerie, a zoo, at the Tower of London. The city was graced with exotic animals never seen before. The menagerie included snakes, monkeys, and a rhinoceros. Not privy to the needs of the animals, an ostrich died after receiving a diet of silverware. An elephant, a gift from Louis IX, died after just four years after being given too much red wine. From Norway, the king received a polar bear that would swim in the Thames. People could visit the zoo and pay with money or with a cat or dog to feed the lions. Henry was very different in his mindset to previous kings. While Henry II, Richard and John sought territorial gains 
in earnest. Henry lifted the spirits of monarchy. England became blessed with Gothic architecture, replacing Norman structures in Salisbury, Wells, Lincoln, and Canterbury cathedrals. He spent £3,000 a year on building projects. He was also a deeply pious man. He heard mass several times a day, often delaying governmental procedures. Louis IX even closed churches when Henry came to France to prevent him visiting. Henry became obsessed and devoted his life to a former King of England, Edward the Confessor. He saw him as a man who overcame oppression and still made it to heaven. When his remains were exhumed, Henry found his crown. This crown would be used for subsequent coronations. He also wielded Edward's sword at his wedding. His mural was placed in his bedchamber. He named his son after him, and in 1245 began work on rebuilding Westminster Abbey, befit with an immense tomb, to inter his ancestor at the cost of £45,000. By the 1240s, Henry was a majestic figure modelling himself on the French kings who sought authority, but in a post-Magna Carta England, he would have an almighty battle on his hands. the 1240s, the Plantagenet will for conquest resurfaced with his campaign in Wales. Henry was successful when David ap Llewellyn submitted to the king in 1241. His authority dug deeper into Wales than his predecessors. His confidence was quickly shot, however, with a disastrous campaign in Poitou. This would mark the end of Henry's forgettable history of conquest. Politics and architecture at home would preoccupy the king until the end of his reign. In the same decade, Henry's friend Simon de Montfort was tasked with controlling Gascony. He would do so with an extremely heavy hand. He fortified the county in impressive fashion, but oppressed the Gascon barons without relent. His list of enemies grew long and acted with the malevolence King John. He hemorrhaged money, imprisoned and starved his enemies, confiscated land, and spitefully crippled Gascon wine production by cutting their vines. Discontent was boiling over. De Montfort was recalled to England in 1252 and put on trial. De Montfort was aghast that his friend the king would incline his ear to the traitors of Gascony before his own, a loyal subject. Henry quipped, If you're innocent, the scrutiny will do you no harm. De Montfort was not hesitant in his scathing attack upon the King of England, showing a serious lack of deference. De Montfort was paid out of his contract in Gascony and was effectively sacked. The friendship was over. In the late 1240s and 50s, Henry's disregard for Magna Carta reached its peak with dire consequences. In 1247, Poitevin families, the most prominent being the Lusignan family, came to England and were welcomed with a flood of patronage. In return, they would protect Gascony as a neighbouring county. The siblings of the family were afforded lucrative marriages. One was made the Bishop of Winchester, and another the Earl of Pembroke. Each position carried huge weight in political influence. 
The English barons were overlooked once more by foreigners, but the Lusignans proved far more destructive than the Savoyards. They were contemptuous, rude, arrogant, and made no effort to integrate into English society. Between 1247 and 1258, the Poitevins were awarded 24 wards in comparison to seven awarded to non-Poitevins. Henry was influenced heavily by the rapacious Lusignans, who soon had considerable say over policy in England and dominated court. Figures at all levels soon felt the wrench of Lusignan autocracy. They were utterly despised. A sheriff in Bedfordshire wouldn't raise money because of the power of Lusignan, William de Valence. Guy of Lusignan responded by saying that William would do no more for the sheriff than the sheriff's daughter. When the Lusignans ransacked Lambeth Palace without punishment, the barons pleaded with Henry. The king's response was incredulous. In 1256, the king proclaimed that any writ against the Lusignan family would not be acted upon. This effectively placed the Lusignans above the law, an almighty breach of Magna Carta. Henry's indifference to the barons was becoming reminiscent of his father. The barons had nearly reached the end of their tether. One huge miscalculation from the king would bring the country on the brink of civil war. During his reign, the deeply pious Henry paid a fifth of the church's revenue to Rome. Now the Pope wanted to extend his influence by placing the son of the King of England, a vassal state, on the throne of Sicily. Originally offered to Richard, Henry's brother, he rejected the idea, claiming you may as well have offered me the moon and asked me to climb and claim it. Henry would not be put off by such common sense. He reveled in the idea and chose his son Edmund, whom he paraded around court in a Pulian costume with glee. The project was entirely unrealistic. The Pope had Henry in a vice-like grip. The debt incurred for such a project was an eye-watering £135,000. If Henry didn't pay, the country would suffer an interdict and himself an excommunication. In the past two decades, every time Henry had come to the barons for taxation for conquest, they had rejected him. Henry had procured money in other ways such as targeting the Jews. It didn't replace solid taxation. Henry's court was poor. Sicily was an investment that was purely for personal gain and didn't benefit a country that was ravaged by famine and poor harvests. It was this wildly irresponsible governing of the country that led to an overdue rebellion in 1258. As Matthew Paris said, the nobility of the kingdom grieved at being reduced to such ruin by the supine simplicity of one man. A group of rebels swore loyalty to each other. Ironically, those rebels at the test of the Lusignans and pushed for reform were the Savoyards. But when they marched down the corridors to confront the king and order change, they were led by a returning, vengeful figure from the past. A man Henry claimed terrified him more than all the thunder and lightning in the world. Simon de Montfort. When confronted, Henry said, What is this, my lords? Am I, wretched fellow, your humble captive? A rebel replied, No, but let the wretched Lusignans and all aliens free from your face and ours. Copious amounts of evidence of violations of Magna Carta were flung at the king. When the Lusignans resisted, de Montfort was brazen, and in contemptuous language they would understand, gave them a choice. Lose your land, or lose your heads. 
They chose the former and fled. But it would not end here. Henry and his son, the heir, Prince Edward, were outnumbered and had no choice but to swear upon the gospel to uphold the provisions of Oxford. Foreigners were to be expelled. A council of 15 independents of the king would be set up and performance managed by a parliament that would meet three times a year. Henry was now merely a figurehead. The provisions of Oxford effectively abolished the absolute Anglo-Norman monarchy. Henry was humiliated. He responded by going on pilgrimage to pray for courage from his saviour Edward the Confessor. Soon he found that courage. In December 1259 he went to meet Louis IX. In exchange for his support against the rebellious barons he signed the Treaty of Paris, relinquishing his claim to all continental land with the exception of Gascony. The Plantagenet Empire officially died on that day. He began to exploit divisions within the dissenting party as Simon de Montfort became more ardent. He was said to want Henry locked away like Charles the Simple. The king negotiated conciliatory terms with the softer barons, and the balance shifted towards the king once more. Finally, in 1261, Pope Alexander IV absolved Henry of the oath he made to fulfil the provisions of Oxford. England would be once again engulfed in civil war. Under the leadership of Simon de Montfort, the rebel forces captured much of southern England, before being unceremoniously removed from London by the young warrior Prince Edward. There would be a showdown at Lewes on the 12th of May, 1264. De Montfort's 200 cavalry and 500 foot soldiers were heavily outnumbered by the army of royalists, foaming from the mouth in fury. With the left flank commanded by the king, the middle by Richard, the king's brother, and the right by Prince Edward, the first pitch battle in many decades began. Because no one alive had real experience of a pitched battle, it was chaotic. Edward's flank rode after the rebellious Londoners. Prince Edward was so incensed by their treachery, he chased them for miles, picking them off far from the battlefield. When Edward's forces regrouped and returned, they expected a sound victory. What they found was a disaster. The Royalists had been massacred. Henry had been captured in a priory and Richard in a windmill. De Montfort ordered Edward to hand himself in and be imprisoned along with the king, or else Richard would be beheaded. They obliged. De Montfort, an earl, had the king of England and the heir imprisoned. He was now effectively ruling the country. He had had his ultimate revenge on Henry. He now had the job of sowing divisions in the rebel camp. Instead, he surrounded himself with adoring subordinates, and his tyrannical proclivities began to resurface. In January 1265, the first parliament without royal permission in history was called. Two knights from each shire and two burgesses from each major town joined, making it a truly elected representation. Little was accomplished, as the barons were averse to common folk contributing to governmental affairs. It would seem the country was ready for a powerful House of Lords, but perhaps not for a House of Commons. Gilbert de Clare was one of the barons who defected to the king. Meanwhile, Edward, as a prisoner in Hartford, was given some freedom of movement. One day, 
He asked to ride all the horses to see which one he liked best. He ran them ragged. By the time he reached for the last horse, he turned to his jailers and said, I bid you good day. He simply galloped away, leaving a host of shattered horses in his wake. Edward quickly mobilised and attracted dissenters from the baronial cause. He was now the figurehead for his father, and set to exact revenge on the revolutionary, Simon de Montfort. His force quickly took Chester, Ludlow, Gloucester and Bristol. Edward then turned his attention to Kenilworth, where he caught Simon de Montfort Jr.'s force, literally napping, and besieged them. Simon de Montfort Sr. brought his force, including the imprisoned king, to link up with his son. While resting nearby in Evesham, his scouts saw the approaching banners of de Montfort and alerted the king of his son's arrival. Soon it became clear that the banners were being held high by the enemy. Edward's force met the rebels at the decisive Battle of the Wall, the Battle of Evesham on the 4th of August 1265. De Montfort was outnumbered once more, three to one. He brought the imprisoned king out to the battlefield on a litter. He was in danger of being killed by his own loyalists. As the rebel forces suffered many losses, Edward assigned 12 men to a specific mission, to kill de Montfort. As the battle slipped away from the rebels, de Montfort was caught by Roger Mortimer and hacked to pieces. His body was mutilated, his testicles were draped over the nose of his decapitated head. The ultimate indignity for the traitor to the crown. No further serious rebellion could be rallied without the figurehead, Simon de Montfort. Edward had won the war for his father, but while the rebellion was over, Kenilworth Castle was still besieged. It became the longest siege in English history. Six months later, the besiegers gave up. The rebels inside the castle were allowed to walk free. While the provisions of Oxford were abandoned, some recognition for baronial discontent was given, with the Statute of Marlborough in 1267. Chapters include the Distress Act. It forbids the seizure of someone's property in order to obtain payment of rent or other monies owed outside of a law. And the Waste Act, that seeks to prevent tenant farmers from making waste to land they are in tenancy of. As of 2020, 753 years later, these are still in British law, the oldest pieces in the United Kingdom. In his final years, Henry was the shell of the former autocratic king who flexed his muscles in his younger days. Henry was now focused on his own true passions. In his old age, he became even more pious. In 1269, Westminster Abbey was complete. On the 13th of October in the same year, and on his feast day, the shrine of St. Edward the Confessor in Westminster Abbey was complete, as his body was laid to rest for the final time. There it remains to this day. In 1270, Prince Edward went on crusade. Henry became increasingly ill and wrote to his son asking for his return. He didn't turn back. As he recovered slightly, Henry, it seemed, was still somewhat of a dreamer, as he announced his intention to join the Crusades himself. However, on the 16th of November, 1272, he died in Westminster at the age of 65. 
At his request, Henry was buried in Westminster Abbey, in front of the church's high altar, in the former resting place of Edward the Confessor. His heart was sent to rest in Fontevraud Abbey, with the Angevin kings. Henry reigned for 56 years. It was the longest reign to date. It would be the longest reign for 600 years until George III. And today, it is the fourth longest reign in history. He died with a confidence not experienced by the majority of his predecessors. He died in peace, at the height of his power, with a popular heir waiting. Only a brief baron's war had sent the country into conflict during his long reign. Henry was perhaps the greatest medieval patron of the arts. Gothic architecture spread, Oxford and Cambridge flourished, as a new age dawned in education, trade, and craftsmanship. However, the legacy of Henry's reign would largely lie in the work of others. De Montfort's parliament was the most radical step in the history of English rule, until the execution of Charles I. De Montfort's parliament would not die with him. It would become popular in the reign of Edward, as he summoned representatives from the shires and boroughs. It would soon be known as the House of Commons. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for Edward I. Please follow us on Twitter at Kings Queens Pod and on Facebook, the Kings and Queens Podcast. As always, if you've got a message, send it in to the Kings and Queens Podcast at gmail.com or just tweet us. Thank you very much and see you next time. <laughs>